Thanks, Chris. Well, good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I'm Rowan. If you haven't met me, I'd love to say hi to you after the service. One of the pastors here. But one of the things that I love about church is being reminded of God's view of the world. That's why we as a church keep opening up the scriptures, why we've been working through this book of 2 Peter. And that's why really the highlight of the service, the high point is hearing God's word read. And then as we think through what God has said to us, we get to see and think through how we can apply it to our lives. So why don't you join with me as we pray and ask God that by His Spirit tonight, He might capture us with the reality of what He has on store for us to see. Let's pray. Father God, we come here tonight from all sorts of different backgrounds, with all sorts of different things going on in our lives. The pressures of life, the the worries and troubles and joys and and happinesses. And to be honest, Lord, those things so often cloud out our view of what really matters. But we thank you that tonight as we open up your word, we hear from you. And we ask now that as we we think through the implications of this for our lives, that, that by your spirit, you would do your work in us. You'd comfort us where we need to be comforted. You'd challenge us where we need to be challenged. You'd shake our view of the world up so we might see it through your eyes. Lord, we ask tonight that by your Spirit you would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my pet hates at university was what my friends and I used to call the front seat bandits. I don't know if you've ever noticed the front seat bandits in your lectures. There are often people who sat up the front of a lecture theatre and they always had questions on all the extra special bits. You know, they'd read the footnotes, they'd done something else, they'd put their hand up and they'd ask their questions, as I like to call them, in a way that was really just showing off to everyone else, look how great I am, look how confident I am, look at all the extra reading that I've done. It was so annoying, these people. I used to find myself just getting frustrated at the front seat bandits. So much so that my friends and I, anytime they would put their hand up, we started giving this audible groan. We'd be like, like this, right? Incredibly mature we were, incredibly mature. But if I was to press into why that annoyed me so much, I think if I'm honest, it's because, well, it made me feel inferior, it made me feel like, oh, there's more here I should be able to say. Maybe I should be that confident. Maybe, maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I haven't done enough reading and, I, and I'm not good enough to be here. It made me question whether I should actually be there. That was so confident, seemingly so knowledgeable. And the lecturers seemed to be happy to engage in their parade. It actually made me want to quit lectures altogether and be like, what's the point? Why am I actually here? But little did I know that that very same year I went to university, it was 1999, my first year, Sydney University, a Bachelor of Science with a major in psychology, that's what I was doing, that some researchers on the other side of the world discovered something significant that would shed light on the phenomenon that we were experiencing called the front seat bandits, right? They called it the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, they too had noticed people in the world like my front seat bandits, but they didn't call them that. Um, They described them as people with a dual burden. That's a nice way of saying it. Really, they said that these people suffered from two things. Firstly, ignorance. Oh, don't show that yet, please. No, 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 not yet, not yet. Oh, just hold on, hold on. Don't erase that picture from your mind. (laughs) What picture? Right? Was that a front seat bandit somewhere? Anyway, um, two burdens. 
ignorance and ignorance of their own ignorance. Right? They had these two burdens. Re- researchers tested random participants on tests of humor, grammar, and logical reasoning, and they found that people who ranked in the bottom 25% of any of those test scores, so the, the bottom 25% of humor or of grammar or of logical reasoning, they tended to predict that they themselves were in the top 25% or higher of the pack. So they produced this complicated graph, which you might have seen before, that looks like this. And they call it the Dunning-Kruger effect. Here you go. And it goes like this. Um, the, least, the, the, the less confidence you, uh, competence you have, the more confidence you seem to come across with. Right? When a person's lack of knowledge and skills in a certain area, they cause them to overestimate their own competence because as your competence grows, you realize what you don't know. And then your confidence drops because you're not as sure anymore because you've grown in, in competence and so your confidence drops. But the interesting thing that they found was that the people whose competence was in the top 25%, in other words, they did really well in all these tests, they actually predicted that their own scores would be a little lower than they actually were. Now, unfortunately, what that means is that those who are the most ignorant in the bottom 25% of any skill, are also the people who overestimate themselves the most. Which means in any group of people, like for instance, say a lecture or even just a democracy, the most uninformed citizens are our most confident ones. That's a problem, right? And that causes even more problems because not only are the ignorant people extremely resistant to being taught since they believe that they know the most, they're also guilty of sharing the most information or misinformation. If only I'd known about this phenomenon when I was at uni, I wouldn't have felt so small. It would have done a world of good for my insecurities, thinking these people at the front, probably, they don't know much. They just think they know a lot. They've just come in and they're asking these questions in that way. And it wouldn't have pushed me to think, maybe this is all too hard. Well, as we open up to Peter... Uh, we find that the same phenomenon happens with regard to our faith. Point number one tonight is that scoffers will come. Scoffers will come. Look with me, chapter three, verse three. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. In other words, people will say things boldly and confidently and cause you to think, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. I mean, who amongst us hasn't thought at least once that Jesus seems to be taking a long time, right? Have you experienced that? Have you felt that feeling? I mean, is, is he really coming back? Or this idea that he's coming back to bring judgment, that he's going to return to judge the world, it does feel a little bit strong, doesn't it? And perhaps we've misunderstood what Jesus meant. And so you find yourself doubting, listening to the voice of scoffers, wondering, is this really what I believe? Friends, Peter is telling his readers and us, that this is what we should expect. We should expect people to scoff at the message of Jesus, to to mock Him and us, to belittle Him and us. 
Now, we never want to dismiss the objections that are made to the Christian faith by those around us. We should listen to them and test them and and take them seriously and, and see if there are answers and answer them. But the thing Peter is telling us here is that we should never be surprised by the scoffers. We should be aware, is what Peter says. Don't Don't be blindsided when people raise challenges to the faith. Don't be tempted to give in or give up. Remember the Dunning-Kruger effect. That tells us that just because someone is confident doesn't mean that they're right. No, the answer to the scoffers isn't to join them in their ignorance and snap back with just as much confidence. But it's to come to the Word of God. You see, the scoffers' main objection here in 2 Peter to the return of Jesus isn't how long it takes. They're not going, you know what, this is taking longer than I thought. You know, I thought Jesus would be you know, only a couple of weeks. Why is, why is he taking however many years it's been? Man, this isn't right. They're not, they're not coming from that angle. They're not even coming from the angle of saying, oh, I wonder if he's going to keep his word. Maybe, maybe he will, maybe he won't. No, they're rejecting what the news of the coming of Jesus would bring. They're rejecting what the whole Old Testament looked forward to. That the second coming of Jesus would bring in the day of the Lord. The day that the earth as we know it would cease to exist. The day that would bring an end to all rebellion and every single person would be judged. They're saying, Jesus isn't going to judge the world. That's what they're saying. The world's not going to end. Don't be so stupid. Don't think that that, that's just kind of some bad thing. Some guy said, look, I know Jesus is, you know, he's all about love and and about life. But, you know, he's not going to actually judge the world. Don't worry about that stuff. And we hear that same reasoning today, don't we? The world has this view that it will just keep on going. This materialistic view that all there is to this world is, is what is here. The idea that the world is, is nothing more than a series of laws and rules with, with no plan and motive or history. It's just one big accident that's then rolling on and it's got these rules and laws that exist and it will just continue to do so forever. This is what they say to Peter 3. Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Where's this end that Jesus was talking about, that you claim Jesus was speaking of? Right? The sun sets, the sun rises, and it keeps doing that day after day after day, just as it always has. But here's where Peter shows their ignorance. He goes back to the Word of God and to human history to show that's not true. The world hasn't always just existed, and the world hasn't always just done everything the same way it did the day before. He gives two instances that God changed the natural and ongoing order of the way He upheld the world quite clearly. And the first one is pretty clear, it's creation. The second one's the flood. Let's have a look at those. Verse 5. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. What he's saying is, God, this God, the true and living God, made the world. Genesis tells us that the earth was, was formless and, and void and that God hovered over the waters and He, he made it. He, he gathered the waters together and made land and, and, and sea and He spoke. This wasn't just some random act of nothingness, some, some God sticking to some principles that were pre-existent. 
God made this world. He made it for His purpose. The psalmist tells us that the the heavens, the sky, declares the glory of God. The stars proclaim His handiwork. As you look around at the world, you see it's not an accident. But once you remove agency, once we say it's just an accident, then we remove any accountability to anyone and it just becomes survival of the fittest. We've got no purpose. We just move on. And that's what these kind of people were saying. We just... The world's just always existed and always been running. Peter is saying this is no accident. It is the very plan and purpose of God. Secondly, while God made it, He hasn't always upheld it the same way. Look at what He says in verse 6. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. He's like, do you remember human history? That God brought His judgment on the earth, on humanity, before in the flood. Do you remember back to what Moses wrote in Genesis 6 about the flood? Come with me and have a look. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature. For the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Don't for one minute think that God is some impotent figment of our imagination. Don't for one minute think His judgment and His justice are some sort of empty threat that won't ever happen. Don't say just because the sun rose um, this morning and it will probably rise tomorrow that that's going to happen forever because there was a time when God broke into the natural order that He had created to bring judgment on earth. Don't think He won't or can't wipe out evil and rebellion from the face of the earth. It's simply ignorance to think that, given what He's already done. Then Peter tells us something else that ought to inform the way we hear these scoffers and our own doubts as they rise amongst us. He tells us that God is currently actively maintaining the earth. He's keeping the earth as it is. He's actively involved in it. Look here at verse 7. By the same word, He presents the heavens and the earth. Sorry, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What he's saying is that this world isn't just hurtling along, round and round, sun comes up, sun goes down, sun comes up, all by itself without purpose and function. God didn't create the earth and then step back like some sort of cosmic watchmaker who who wound up the world with some laws and let it go off and, and sat there like that thinking man pose, just kind of watching the world as it spins. No, God is presently and actively upholding the laws of physics. He's sustaining every creature, saying to every heart on the face of the planet, beat, 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 beat. Saying to every set of lungs on the face of the planet, in, out, in, out. See, Jesus says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. This world is a testament to the fact that God is upholding it. 
But to think he's going to uphold it perpetually, year after year, as he has since the flood and just keep going forward, is a grave misunderstanding, says Peter. Because he's upholding it for a purpose. Until the day Jesus returns. The day he judges the earth. That's point number two tonight. Jesus will come. Jesus will come. So the Bible makes it clear from beginning to end that this world has a fixed end point. And that end is not going to be brought about by just mindless physical forces, global warming or some nuclear explosion. No, the Bible tells us that the end of the world is going to be brought about by the purposeful and deliberate and intention, action and will of God. Now, he may use physical forces, but behind those will stand a deliberate and purposed decision on God's part to end things at that moment. This is the claim of the Old Testament. Come with me to Malachi chapter 4. The prophet Malachi says this, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them. Or Zephaniah chapter 1, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. So here, Peter is reminding them and us that God is in control of this world. It's not just going to keep going and going day after day like the scoffers say it will. Because their confidence is built on ignorance. That God has a plan and He's going to bring an end to the problem of injustice. Now, we kind of go, sounds pretty dark. Why is God doing this? Well, He's doing it because evil is wrong. I mean, we hate it when, when someone gets away with wrong, particularly when they've wronged us. We hate it when people do things that hurt others. We hate it when injustice reigns. And on this world, you've got to say, injustice reigns. But God is saying it won't go on forever. That there'll be a point when he brings in his justice. The problem is, we are people that cause evil in the world. We cause hurt and harm in the lives of others. And if we're crying out to God, I want you to end all the pain. Where are you, God? Why haven't you ended ended all the pain? Then, Then we need to recognize that that's because he hasn't ended us yet. Because we create pain in the lives of people. But God says to think, that that day will never come. The day of His justice will never come. To think that will never happen, that's crazy. More than that, Peter tells us, these scoffers not only are building their confidence on ignorance, but they're deliberately overlooking what God has said. There's a deliberate decision here. There's this kind of dynamic going on for the scoffer who, because they don't want it to be so, they find reason for it not to be so. You know, you know, it's like, imagine the kid, right? I've seen this a few times, maybe in myself, maybe in my children, who at Easter wants to eat all the chocolate eggs. They're like, man, this is great. I love all the eggs. And you, you say to the kid, look, don't eat all the eggs. It's going to be bad for you. They're like, but I want to eat the eggs. Like, you, you can't eat all the eggs right now. And they look at you like, you're evil, dad. I can't believe you're not going to let me eat all these. Look how good they are, all these eggs. And you're like, remember last time when you ate them all and you spewed and you never wanted to have chocolate again? And they're like, whatever, I don't believe in that. I'm fine now. I can eat all the eggs, right? And they throw out reality because they don't want reality to be so. They deliberately suppress the memories of vomiting 
so they can eat more egg now because it's so good, right? So the scoffer deliberately overlooks what the past has made clear and what the present is proclaiming, that God is in control, that this world won't continue on as it is because they can't sit with the inconvenient truth that Jesus is coming. Friends, Peter is telling us to be aware, not only of mockers and scoffers who deliberately overlook the truth of God's Word and His Gospel, but of the way we too attempted to overlook the inconvenient truths of Scripture and the impact that has on us. Do you ever find yourself not wanting to dwell on the things like the judgment of God and how it might affect us? The judgment of God at first sight is not the most appealing thing. And rather than, rather than wrestle with why God judges and trying to see what He's said to us in His Word, seeing there's something right about evil being punished and justice being delivered, instead we deliberately overlook the Word of God. It's just inconvenient. I don't want to deal with it. I kind of just want to live life now and enjoy the world that we have. And so we kind of drift away from what God says. We lose the urgency. We lose our purpose for why we're here because we can deliberately overlook the inconvenient truths of Scripture. Friends, be aware of the powerful danger of overlooking the inconvenient truths of God's Word, lest we too become scoffers and miss out on the reality. No, Jesus is coming back. And He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Now, the big surprise for the first century audience was that the day of the Lord, the day Jesus came back, was actually split in two. So the Old Testament had the view that the, the day that the Lord came and, and saved His people and judged the evil in the world, the Old Testament view was that would all happen on the one day. But as Jesus arrives on the scene, we see that that day is split into two. The first coming where Jesus has come to, to save and then the second coming that we're still waiting for when He's come back to judge. Jesus himself talks about this in John 12. Have a look, it's on the screen. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You're like, huh, so he came to save the world. But then look at verse 48. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word, the word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Do you see? Jesus coming first has come to save and then he's saying, I'm coming back again to judge. And how you respond to my word now will be how I will judge you then. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 4. He says this, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead? In God's great wisdom, he split the day of the Lord's coming, the day God would bring judgment on the earth and salvation, into two days and separated them a long way apart. We don't know how far because we don't know when Jesus is coming back yet. But with the coming of Jesus, God made possible the forgiveness of sinners like us. He made possible the fact that we could stand forgiven before God because of Jesus' death in our place. Jesus did the unthinkable. He came and died in our place and took the consequences for us, turning our back on God, death. He said, I, the perfect sacrifice, will come and experience God's justice. I will take it on, on myself 
so that you can stand forgiven. You can call God your Father and the new creation your home. God the Son came and took the punishment you and I deserve. Just like Isaiah 53 promised the suffering servant would do. But then he delayed the end of all things. The question is, why? Why such a big gap? Why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't he come and put an end to all the evil in the world? Well, Peter tells us it's because God is being patient. That's point number three tonight. The patience of God. The patience of God. See, God hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel of the coming of Jesus. It's like God's there, you know, up wherever God is, and he's kind of just drifted off to sleep. He's like, whoa, whoa, suddenly woken up. Jesus, go, 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 you got to go. Get, get down there. You know, you're supposed to go back for your second coming. And he's, he's kind of just asleep going, oh, what's going on? None of that at all. No, Peter tells us why there is such a big gap. Have a look with me at verse 8 of chapter 3. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, with God... A thousand years is like the blink of an eye. It's like that. You know when you're a kid and you're looking forward to Christmas. Say you're four years old. When I was four, Christmas would take so long to come around again. I remember it's like having to wait for ages. You've just had Christmas and then you've literally got to wait a quarter of your whole life before Christmas comes. A quarter of your lived experience. 25% of all your experience of, the, of your time on earth. You have to wait for Christmas to come again. But then as you get older, it kind of comes faster and faster, as do the bills and the costs of Christmas. And by the time you're 40, right, I've only got to wait 2.5% of my life. And then, whoa, Christmas is here again. I'm like, that was so fast compared to the time I've been alive. Well, imagine how quick the universe goes for the God who is eternal. He like has an ad break for a millennia. It's like, oh, yeah, just a quick break. Yeah, it's nothing. Like he's always existed, who has and always has been and always will be. So we think, where is God? He's a bit slow. Why hasn't he come back yet? We miss the bigness of God. We miss the bigness of his plan and what he's doing. We're like, man, this is hard now. I really want you to end all the suffering and I really, really want you to come back and sort things out. But God is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There is a much bigger plan going on. I'm doing something incredible, something great, something that you'll get to be involved in that is worth my patience. And at this, I'm giving time for you to come to know me. He is being patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, that's not saying God isn't in control of who he draws to himself. But what he is saying is that God's deep desire is to give us more time so more people might come to him. Yes, He's the one that draws us to Him. But he, He's not come back yet because He wants more to come and trust in His Son, trust in the solution to our own stupidity in Jesus. God is being patient. So people sitting in Auckland in the year 2023 could be able to say, wow, look at what Jesus did for me. 
I am so thankful that Jesus paid the price for me that I can now call God my Father. And I can call Jesus my brother and I can look forward to the new creation and spend an eternity with Him and His people and with God and experience that great joy. God's patience means our salvation. Over the last few months here at Auckland EV, God's done incredible things in the lives of many of us. I wanted to stop for a moment and show you what's going on. Here's something on the screen. Hi, I'm Stella and I became Christian a couple of months ago and I was brought to Uni Church by Wei Hong and I think explaining Christianity helped me a lot in understanding the love and the truth from Jesus. And yeah, that's what brought me back. Hey everyone, my name is Alan and I'm here to share my defining moment which is coming to reality that Jesus' love is greater than what we can understand. That's when I decided to commit to find out who Jesus is and why Jesus did what he did. See you guys around. Hi, my name is Emmanuel and I wanted to share my faith journey with you. I put my trust in Jesus when I connected my life experiences and realized that the love and mercy God has shown me all this time. My name is Joel. Um, I became a Christian back in Easter of this year, so not too long ago. I'm a relatively new Christian. But something that really helped me on my path to becoming a Christian was explaining Christianity, which was run through church. Um, explaining Christianity was great for explaining the fundamentals of the gospel in a really easy to understand way. from Japan. I became Christian last November around when I started coming to Uni Church. I became Christian because God's love is amazing and God's love heals me a lot and God brings me lots of good things. For example, happiness, forgiveness, joy, caring one another and so on. Hey what's up church, I'm Reno and I became a proper Christian on 27th of June, Tuesday night in Unicorn. And people who brought me back to the Lord are Kramnik, Nick, Pastor Ben, Louis, Justin, Joel, Quentin, Reese, Dylan, Dave, Jan, Ezra, Pastor Charlie, who's in Australia now. Literally everyone that I know in UniChurch, UniChurch itself, nevertheless, ultimately Lord Jesus pulled me back to his home and I grabbed the rope. And that's it. Sweet. Thank you and thank you Lord Jesus. I'm Yvette and I recommitted to the Lord in March. It was actually during my brother's baptism when I had gone there to be a supporter. But during that process, it actually encouraged me to go back to church and to learn more about God and His Word. Hi guys, my name is Jono and it was about three years ago when I realized that I wasn't living my life the way it should be and I recommitted myself to following the Lord completely. Um, it was spurred on by a couple of major events in my life that had me question kind of what it meant for me to be a Christian. Um, and ever since then, basically the Lord has um, been encouraging me and, and helping me to work through things in my life um, to basically become more like Jesus and to, and to really understand what it means to, to lead a, a Christian life.
amazing is God's patience, right? That's so encouraging that God has been patient to allow those people just in, in these last 12 months to come to know Him and more. And there's stories repeated here across church, across our campuses, across this city and across the world. It makes you sit here and think, Eternity will be even greater now, spending it with these people who now trust the Son, who now get to experience forgiveness. And life now is better, being able to walk side by side with people who've been captured and captivated by the one who's died for them. Friends, as we sit here today, as we think about what God is doing, as we think about the reality of Jesus' return and the end that God is bringing, it gives us great clarity about how we live now. It's point number four tonight. The clarity of the end. Verse 10 tells us these things. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Peter is saying... Friends, the end of all things is super, super near. The day of the Lord's coming is right on the edge and it gives us an urgency to say, hey, come to Jesus now while you still can. It gives us an urgency to really want ourselves to think through how we're living life. If you think about it, the day of the Lord, Peter says, is going to come like a thief. You never know when a thief's going to come. That's the whole point. Thieves don't go around putting a little, hey, I'm going to come next Thursday at 6 p.m., so just make sure you're not home, please. Little note in your letterbox. No, they rock up when you're least expecting it. And it could be at any moment. That, that's why we lock our doors when we go out. That's why you locked your door, I hope, when you went out. If you're sitting here feeling nervous now, it's because you know that a thief could come at any moment. And you're like, man, did I lock the door? I can't remember as I walked out. And, and so there's a, there's a sense where you want to go, am I living in light of that reality? But Peter has put before us a far greater reality than someone breaking into our house. It's the reality of the end of all things. On that day, he tells us, the heavens will pass away. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The earth and the works on it will be disclosed. This world is going to end. It'll be it. Sayonara, done. How does that give us clarity now? Well, it gives us clarity. It helps us to sharpen what matters. If you know that this world is ending, then why are you living for this world? Where are you living for this world? Living for a house, a holiday, a, a fancy job, a, a, an amazing relationship. If, if this world is not going to go beyond, well, it could be tomorrow. At best, the rest of our lives is not going to be that much time compared to eternity. If this world is going to be remade and refreshed, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth that lasts forever, why on earth are you living for earth? Why are we living for these things? Peter says the end gives us great clarity. At any moment, Jesus could come back and all our works will be disclosed. Don't live for the now. Don't live for the now. And secondly, don't conduct yourselves as if this world is your home. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are being dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. 
Given that this world as we know it is ending, our prime identity isn't in our cultural heritage, what race we're from, what place we were born, or what class we belong to. Our identity, if we trust in Jesus, is that we are living for a new heaven and a new earth. And that shapes everything about not just what I live for, but how I live, the way I live. He tells us we ought to be people who conduct ourselves in holy conduct. That word holy isn't just walking around with our noses in the air and going, yes, I'm holy and we know I do good things or whatever. It's, it's a picture of saying you should be living as you are. You should have the morals and the moral compass of, of really our Saviour Jesus. Living His way is the best way to live. And when His way clashes with the world around us. What on earth are we doing finding ourselves falling back into the temptation of living for this world? I'll tell you something. Every single place that we live for the things of this earth is a reality where we're living in rebellion against God. We're saying, I don't don't believe that you're coming back. I don't believe there'll be a new creation because I think I need it now. I I chase the the sexual fantasy. I chase this thing or that thing and it's so good and I've got to have it. Oh, how short-sighted we are. No, the currency of the kingdom of God is godliness and holiness. And so Peter says, live for the world where righteousness will reign and godliness is its currency. And as we do that, he tells us, we're to live our lives waiting for the day. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God. This waiting, it's an active kind of thing that you're doing. It's not like, oh yeah, I know Jesus is coming back. I parked that idea over there. Now I'm just going to go over here and live for this world in in my ways. I'm going to do the stuff I want to do. I'm going to make the most of what I can and and kind of forget about the Creator and just enjoy His creation. And Yeah, that's kind of waiting. I'm just going to get on with life. No. He's saying, wait, like, have you ever seen a dog waiting for its owner to come home? Our dog, Stella, she's like um, one and a half years old now. She loves people and she loves us when we come home. And whenever you, you kind of walk in the door or someone opens the, the door latch or the front door, she like sits up and she's sitting there. She's like, oh, it's like she's waiting for you to come in. She's waiting for who's going to walk in. She's like, oh, are they here? Is it my owner? She gets so excited. She starts wagging her tail, but then like a whole butt starts wagging. She's like, whoa, I'm excited to see them come home. That is active waiting. <laughs> are you waiting for the day of the Lord? like that? Waking up each day longing for Jesus to come back and to put things right. Waking up each day going, hey, it could be today. So I want to tell others about this. I want to, I want to live in a way that is right. I want to put as my focus the things of the new creation rather than this creation. Are you actively waiting for the day of the Lord? Does it shape your decisions in your life? But then Peter tells us one more thing that I think is incredible. And this next thing has really shaped my entire life. It's changed the way I think about who I am, what I'm here for, and what I do with my days. He says, as you wait for the day of God, in verse 11, and get this, and hasten its coming. What? Hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Peter is saying that you and I who trust in Jesus can actually hasten the day of Jesus' return. We can make that happen sooner. 
You're like, well, how do we do that? I thought we didn't know the day or the hour. We, we, we don't. But what he is talking about here is the reality of what our life is for. Our reason for being. See, to hasten the day is to point people around us to the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Because the thing that is stopping the return of Jesus is God's patience waiting for more people to come to repentance. The only thing that is holding back the end of the world as we know it is God giving more time for people to come to know Him. So as you wait for the day, as you recognize the reality that Jesus is coming back, live your life pointing people to the second coming of Jesus. Live your life in a way that people go, wow, you're not living for the here and now. It's like you've got some other hope. And you're like, yes, I do. A new heaven and a new earth. Live in this world enjoying not just creation, but the creator who gave it to us celebrating his creation and recognizing that he's going to remake it. Don't spend all your time on this world. And live your lives in holy conduct and godliness so the world around us says, wow, you're living for someone else. I take it, this is what Jesus means in the Lord's Prayer when he encourages us to pray, your kingdom come. Let your life be shaped around the coming kingdom of God. Ask God to come. Ask God to bring people to himself. Ask God to repeat the stories that we've seen on the screen tonight amongst our friends and family and neighbors and colleagues. Because that is what matters. That is what lasts. The only thing holding up the end of the world is God's patience, giving people more time to repent. If you're here tonight, and you've not yet come to Jesus and accepted his forgiveness, can I urge you, God is being exceedingly generous with you as he has been with us. He's giving you time to come and trust his son and experience the forgiveness that comes from him and life that lasts forever. Can I encourage you tonight? Don't delay, don't push off coming to him and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for turning my back on you. I'm sorry for living with myself at the center of the world. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Please help me to live with you as my king and enjoy eternity that lasts forever. Can I encourage you? Say that to God tonight, will you? In the 1930s, there was a man by the name of Arthur Stace. He first saw the incredible love of God around 1936. He'd been a pretty angry man. Here's a picture of him on the screen. He'd been a drunk a war veteran, a criminal, he'd been in prison. His, he was a mess and his life was a mess. But one day he heard someone speaking of the forgiveness that Jesus offered and the life that Jesus offered. And he kind of investigated as a bit of a skeptic. And as he came to the scriptures, he realized that he was looking down the barrel of hell, of God's judgment, because he knew he hadn't been someone who'd lived a life that was right before God or others. And he also heard of the hope that was given to those who trust in Jesus. The hope that Peter speaks about here in, in verse 13. Peter says this, based on his promise, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Arthur Stace was so taken by the forgiveness that's been offered and the future that was offered to him that he gave his life to Jesus when I'm in, I trust you, I follow you. Now, he wasn't a learned man. He kind of didn't have many skills or much oratory kind of to go and tell the world about how amazing Jesus was. But he felt like he wanted to let the world know how amazing it is 
that he could live forever because of Jesus, that he, a sinner, could, could know God's forgiveness. And so he began with a stick of yellow chalk, writing eight letters on every footpath and building and street he could find. Those letters spelled out the word eternity. Everywhere he went, he wrote the word eternity. He wrote it on the footpath. He wrote it on, on notice boards. So much so that the people of Sydney, where he was, started to recognize this as a phenomenon. They've said that over, he wrote eternity over 500,000 times. He would go around to help people to think about eternity. Think about what matters. Think about your life in light of eternity. It became such an icon that at the turn of the millennium, in New Year's Eve, 1999, the same year we, I was in first year university, and the same year they found the Kruger effect, the Sydney Harbour Bridge was lit up with fireworks, welcoming in the new millennium. It went off with this massive explosion. There was fireworks all down the harbour, all up the harbour. I was there. I remember it. It was incredible. There were these bright lights and things going off. And then the Harbour Bridge just exploded with lights coming off it. And as the lights kind of went down, the smoke kind of cleared. They wrote one word on the Harbour Bridge, and it was this. Eternity. See, Arthur Stace had left such an impact on the city of Sydney that they knew it as a cultural icon. But Sydney didn't know what it meant. In their confidence, they thought it was talking about humanity, that Sydney and Australia and this world would go on for eternity. This is a symbol of our longevity because they thought they knew and so they boldly proclaimed to the world that eternity was about them Friends, can I encourage you tonight? Do not be like Sydney. Do not think that eternity is simply a nice word for the way that the world will continue around us. Can I encourage you to think of eternity like Arthur Stace did? To write it everywhere, whether that's physically or just mentally. To think about all the things in your life, all the things that you live for, and maybe write eternity across them. Write eternity on your, your deepest passions. Write eternity on the things you love. Put eternity across your calendar so you might make decisions about how you use your time with eternity in light. Write it on your mirror. Write it on, on your phone. Name your bank accounts starting with the word eternity. Put it on your wardrobe, on your car, on your house, on the pictures of your friends and family, on everything you possibly can. Because we need to make every effort to remember that we are not living for the here and now. But we are living our lives in light of eternity. And what we do here and now matters only if it crosses death into the eternity that is to come. So friends, can I encourage you tonight to reshape your life. The way you think about what matters and what you are here for in line with the word eternity. And Peter's reminder that Jesus is coming back and he will judge the living and the dead. But if you trust in him, then you will live forever. And that God is being patient. So won't you use every minute of your life to make an impact on eternity? Let's pray. Father God, 
As we sit here tonight, it's incredible to think that people who deserve your judgment can stand forgiven because of Jesus. So we look at the way that we've treated you and, and what we rightly deserve. We, we do recognize that we, we deserve your justice. But we are so thankful for Jesus' death in our place. We are so thankful that you've not given us what we deserve, but you've given us life. We confess that so often we live our lives for the here and now. That we live our lives thinking about how we can get the most out of the next year, five years, ten years. That we rarely think about who you are and our lives in light of eternity. By your Spirit tonight, Lord, we ask that you would help us to write eternity over all the things in our lives that matter. That we would see them all through your lens. And that we might therefore live and use all the energy and gifts and skills and time and money that we have to live for that which cannot be taken away, that you've already secured in your Son, Jesus. Would you help all of us tonight to live with eternity in mind? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.